Welcome to the ENA Podcast. This is the ENA Podcast, and this is Dan Campana, the Director of Communications with the Emergency Nurses Association, welcoming you back to our latest episode. And yes, it has been a while since we had a new episode. Things have been really busy and crazy and fun and exciting at ENA over the last several months, but I had to come back. I had to bring the podcast back. We had to get back on track here these last couple of months in 2021 because there's so much happening and there's still so many you know, important things that we want to talk about. And without a doubt, and this is nothing new for ENA, but certainly the topic of workplace violence is something that is always super important to ENA on so many levels. And I'm excited to, to welcome Wendy Mickelson uh, to the podcast today. Wendy is the Workplace Violence Program Manager for Multicare System in Washington State. And um, Wendy's story, I think, is going to be very interesting because with looking at ways to mitigate and change what's happening in EDs, um, I, I'm interested in, in having Wendy share a little bit about how she got into this and really what it's been like over the year that her program has been in place. So, Wendy, welcome to the ENA podcast. Thank you, Dan, for having me. Um, I am honored as a um, ED nurse by trade. I am honored to be here. Well, Wendy, um, what, tell, tell us about your background. You know, you're ready to jump right into it. Let's jump right into it. Tell us a little bit about your background <laughs> in ED nursing. And I know you've been an ENA member since basically the start of your career. So tell us a little bit about uh, you know your your history and your journey as a career. Um, I actually came right out of nursing school as an ED nurse because that's really the only reason I went to nursing school. It's still my passion and my love. I spent about 11 years at bedside and then I transitioned into education where I started as a um, system educator for the multi-care um, health system, which includes about 10 facilities. So from there, um, I had an opportunity in 2019 to enter our brand new workplace violence prevention program within multi-care. And um, this fortunately or unfortunately came about because of a House Bill 1931 by Washington State that mandated that healthcare facilities have a workplace violence prevention program. So um, I became the program manager for that back in 2019. And that has, um, taken on a life of its own, I gotta tell you. It's been, it's been a lot of lessons learned, but pretty great. So unfortunately, every emergency nurse has had some experience with some level of violence in just trying to do their job, trying to care for patients. And inevitably, unfortunately, something occurs, um, you know, to whatever you know, level you're comfortable with, because everybody's experience is different. But I imagine that you've got a story, you've got an experience, or you just know what it was like across those 11 years to have that in the back of your mind that, you know, there is some risk and, you know, it shouldn't be that way, but you certainly, you know, certainly probably understood that things happen. And it, what, what really is your, you know, what did you take away from all those years in, in terms of the things that you had to deal with? I took away, um, I took an injury, took away an injury that actually brought me away from the ED, even though it was my first love, it was an injury from a patient that could have been avoidable had I had the training that we provide now and could have been avoidable if we'd had the support that we have now and the recognitions. So, you know, I've um, unfortunately got a lot of experience with workplace violence. I look back at the things that happened and 
what went on and what still goes on. And interestingly enough, as much as my, as most violence that people hear about kind of leads back to the emergency department, I find in my experience with our system and systems around me that I communicate with, that largely that is shifting um, into the behavioral health network as well. And I think that's just by nature of our, um, you know, the pandemic has brought about increased mental health clients, um, homelessness, all of those things. I don't know how it is in your state, but those are two things that are sorely, um, mental health is sorely lacking and homelessness is not. So, um, so yeah, I think I bring a lot of unfortunate um, experience, but also good for the, for the life of the program as well. So you kind of started to answer this question a little bit, but why did a role like this, you were already working on the education side, but why did you feel you were the right fit or how did you make your case to be the person to help lead this program? That is a great question. Um, I have an incredible passion around um, violence in the ED or in the hospital setting in general from patient to staff, but I also have a really incredible passion for lateral violence that happens. And I think that really kind of gets glossed over. And I know being in the ED from day one, that there's a certain amount of perceived hazing that might happen or, you know, things like that. And, and that was a real passion of mine. I had a lot of experience on both sides of that coin when I was at the bedside. And for me, um, transitioning out of the educator role for emergency systems, I felt like this was really a need that that needed somebody that understood it from both sides of the coin. Sure. And that was me. So really, what's involved with your job? What what you know what from building something from the ground up has got to be both exciting and kind of daunting because you know did you have a footprint to work from you know or was it more or less understanding like you said what it's like to be on the bedside of this issue and to experience what you experience and kind of growing from there. So really how is, you know, what's been involved in what, you, what you've been doing over the last year or so? Um, you say daunting, I say terrifying okay. when I first <laughs> took this over because there, there was no footprint. We are largely the first um, uh, hospital system I know in the Northwest that has implemented um, a program like this that is so robust. The House bill said that we had to have certain things like check in the box things. You have to have this paper, this program, this oversight. And that was um, pretty easy to do, but MultiCare took it a step further and said, hey, we wanna do more than check in the box. We wanna really make this a program that's gonna change the way that we do business. And we are you know, a high reliability organization. And as we sort of make that travel there through the magnet situation, um, they needed something that included, you know, programs and resources for staff to really get some relief and some training and some outreach. And so largely I started out with um, no roadmap, but kind of a couple of things that said, hey, you need to do X, Y, and Z. So I started with de-escalation training, which has been, um, from what I understand, our outcomes are getting much better because of de-escalation training. Unfortunately, part of that training um, was a physical sort of one-on-one -on -one tactical training that we had to suspend um, because of COVID. So that really hasn't taken that part of it, piece of it, hasn't taken off the ground. But 
Um, De-escalation continues. We have implemented um, a program where we can flag patients at risk for violence to keep employees safe so they know going in that this is someone that needs probably some other interventions. We've also implemented um, some various programs throughout just resources that um, lectures, education, and, and we really try to focus on our foundations like residents coming in and our preceptor network to get that sort of um, incivility training so that we start to change the culture because all the studies show that you're not gonna make things better until you can change the culture. And that really starts at the top down. So while we're, we're starting at the bottom and I don't mean staff being bottom, but they are the, our biggest bucket of opportunity. We start there and are starting to work up and hopefully we're starting to get some top-down training as well. And that will kind of meet in the middle. So there's some really good programs out there, we're, but we're still in our infancy, but we are making some changes. You talked, you alluded to the idea of buy-in, you know, and, you know, getting the people, you know, as you said, sort of the ground level people to start to adopt and, and adjust to some of the things that are probably good practices, but also just a part of the progression. As you said, there's some boxes to check, but there's also other things that were being looked at, but then there's the buy-in from the top down as well. And, you know, that relationship, I think, is always sort of the dynamic that chooses, you know, decides whether something's going to work or not, is whether everybody, like you said, is meeting in the middle. What have been some of the challenges to go beyond just the checking the box where the, it was more about this is what is important to us institutionally or system wide to implement that goes beyond just the minimum of what the legislation asked for? I think the biggest barrier, and this is not a new concept, is the fact that people um, you know, you have the experienced staff that have been there forever. They do things a certain way. They're ensconced as the person that's going to um, not leave because they're really good at their job, but they may have just a horrible attitude and getting at that sector because it's easy to get residents and um, anybody onboarding because they have to go through a certain amount of education, but to reach that experienced person that's been there that doesn't really want to change, those are the people that are tough because you can make education mandatory, but then you're talking about a whole host of other problems, you know, budgeting for each unit, like getting them to show up, the union contracts, all of that kind of stuff. So really that has been our biggest barrier about that culture change. What we've really found is that if we can change enough people around them, that they will weed themselves out. They will either change or they will move on. So... It's, a, it's interesting when you put it that way, because it's because this is an issue that affects everyone, you would want to believe that everybody views change that could benefit and reduce or mitigate the opportunity for the various types of violence that you mentioned. You would think that would be an automatic rallying point. Everybody would say, yes, why wouldn't we do this? So it's going to help say, you know, make us safer or make us feel better or help us out. Um, does that does that ever kind of weigh on your mind a little bit? Is that why wouldn't people want to be on board with some of these things? I mean, does that is that sort of the Rubik's cube for you? Is like how do we move this in a way that you're getting all those different parties to see the same thing without getting too caught up in maybe that that minority that is resistant to the change or doesn't see the benefits that can come for everybody by adopting and, and going through training or doing some of the things that you're you're looking to do across the system. It does. I struggle with it every day because, you, you know, you always have, like you said, it's, it's really a minority 
But sometimes that minority can be so loud and so effective and such a part of that unit that that you can't move the dial until you move that one person, whether they move with you or they leave. But if they continue to to keep their, you know, that sort of constant presence for whatever they have. And, you know, this goes with not just we're talking about, you know, nursing staff or auxiliary staff, we're talking about providers that sort of buy into this too. So you really have to change a lot of minds just to get the dial moved just a little bit. But, but you know, I, I have to keep saying that I keep trying and you have to just keep doing it because it works. It, it will work eventually. Um, but the whole organization has to buy in and that's, that's a tough go. And you, this is took me in the direction of, you know, obviously we're the Emergency Nurses Association. You've mm -hmm. been an emergency nurse for a number of years. Do people overlook the fact that this isn't just an emergency department issue? This does occur. And unfortunately, there are examples of really tragic situations that occur in various parts of the hospital. It's not just an ED thing. Has that been a challenge at all to help people understand beyond the ED that this does affect, this can affect you, and that's why we need that buy-in from other areas of, of the system beyond just the, the front door being the ED. Yes, I, I think people do understand it and people are feeling it, especially when, you know, I'm sure it's across the board that emergency rooms are full of boarded patients. They're full of, um, you know, mental health patients that can't get placement. And so, um, you know, where do those people end up? They end up all over the system, right? Wherever we can plug them in, they get to stay because we've got to keep those emergency room doors open. So I think that they're feeling that as do emergency personnel typically feel that. I think now that they're being filtered out a little bit more, that that's, that's not been difficult because everybody, even our clinics are having a really difficult time with violence towards staff. So I think that has not been a challenge at all. Um, I think people realize this is really a systemic problem. So when you look back on this first year, um, is it a blessing or a curse that this has all come about in the middle of a pandemic or would the struggles and the, and the, the goals and the, the milestones that you've reached in this first year, you know, the things that you've accomplished, it, would this have happened regardless of what's going on in the world around you because of what this topic is, or just kind of, you know, put that into perspective for me a little bit of, you know, where things have gotten, you've gotten to in a year, but how much or how little the pandemic has impacted, uh, you know, you made one reference earlier to, you know, a, a physical contact type, you know, de-escalation training, but, you know, uh, has the pandemic helped or hurt the progress that you've been able to make in a year? I think, um, you know, the pandemic has helped us in a really horrible way because people are really upset, especially visitors that can't come see their loved ones and patients that can't see their people. So I think that sort of really brought this up to a head. But unfortunately, in the Northwest, um, and fortunately, I've been saying that a lot, um, our House Bill 1931 really got the ball rolling for us to be able to, to really devote a lot of dollars to this program and attention. The second thing in the Northwest that might be unique to us, I'm not sure how the rest of the states are, I haven't had the time, honestly, to research it, but we've also had another um, House Bill come around for police reform. And that has been about um, making sure that there is de-escalation attempts before police respond to certain things like someone that's out of control or violent or aggressive or having some kind of behavioral problem. And so twofold, that really brought the attention to, 
wow, okay, so now we've got these really violent people, but then we call for 911, which is like our fail safe. We've got security a little bit, but but 911 is really our safety net. And now, now we don't have that. So, so that's really helped spur all of this on and made leaders and you know, our senior, senior leadership really take notice that we've got to keep our staff safe because they're getting hurt. That brings up another point uh, when you talk about outside the system, outside the hospital setting, um, you know, community partners, whether that be law enforcement or other organizations. Um, is that a key component here? I mean, do you have to, can you build a system or build a program like you do just in-house or do you need to tap into resources outside the building to have good programs in place for people who are dealing with, you know, uh, mental health and well-being issues or other factors that may contribute to violence eventually, maybe not the instant violence, but people who are frequently in the ED. Um, is, is that a component of what their program's uh, looking at or, or will look at at some point? Absolutely. I mean, we're doing it now. And it really was about this house bill. And I'm kind of glad that it happened because we have gone to meetings regularly with our um, police officer, all our enforcement partners. And so we build up a liaison with them in the community. And that means all of them. I don't know how other states work, but we have like five different police, you know, agencies to service one town. So, so there's been a lot of that. There's also been a lot with our behavioral health networks where they run group homes and clinics outside of the hospital that can be, um, um, that are really seeing a lot of the violence because, you know, when they, when they leave the hospital, they have to go somewhere. And when they leave there, they have to go somewhere. So we sort of share all of this responsibility. So community partners are a must, and we've done a lot of work in the past. And I work not just my program, but I feed up to a larger steering committee that handles a lot of this work as well as security. So so I don't want anybody to get the idea that I'm doing all of this work because I'm not, but I am a, I'm the sort of education training piece and, and you know, that, that thinks about the programs and decides what's needed. And, and I have a lot of help, but it's been that the community focus has, I think in the last probably three months has been really important for us. The bigger question here, because, you know, programs like this, feel somewhat unique, uh, whether they're sort of through legislative work or just systems taking ownership of how to protect their, the people that work for them. So people who are maybe working in other places or have, you know, obviously everybody has the concern, but are looking for the solutions, looking for the answers. If they are in a position where they want to start something like this and want to make some of the changes that you're describing that can help in any number of ways. You started with no playbook. What types of things can they, anybody out there who wants to start to move in this direction programmatically, what are some initial thoughts or takeaways you would want them to have about where do you start with this and what can be those early milestones to show you are making some progress because I'm, I would imagine like anything else, there may be times it's like, have we really gotten as far as I want to, or, or we should have been, you know, so to kind of you know, frame it that, you know, any progress is good progress, but ultimately when you start from scratch, you're starting from scratch. What, what's some advice that you would offer to, to folks who are interested in sort of the work that you're doing and maybe would want to introduce it or bring it to the people that are leaders where they work? You know, I think, um, I think if you don't have 
something um, that's mandated or or regulatory or anything like that. I think, you know, starting out grassroots, that's very powerful. If you work in a unit that is particularly violent or um, collecting data that really shows how violent things are and the trends, you know, it's about nursing, go back to your trends, go back to your um, nursing process and really look at a good assessment and then figure out you know, look at the research, research and figure out where that leads you. And, and I can tell you right now, it's going to lead you to de-escalation because that is really powerful. Um, but it's, but it's about the nursing process and it's about grassroots. Nurses are great at that. You know, we're good at, at, at rallying and, and letting people know that we're there. And, and I would say, do that. If you don't have any regulatory standards, there's plenty of research and data out there outside of your facility to give you enough to say this is important work and needs to be done. Because I don't think there's a facility out there that is not touched by violence. And it's not just the emergency room anymore. One of the other things I want to ask you to kind of wrap up is certainly there was some news that came out of the Joint Commission earlier this year to create some some standards, some sort of agreements, you know, or, or not agreements, but requirements to begin to look at programs and ways to mitigate and reduce the opportunities for violence in your role, uh, when you see that, you know, um, I would imagine that's a positive sign, but what, do, what was your, your main thoughts when you look at what is, is being put in place, you know, and certainly there's some overlap with federal legislation that is looking to require OSHA to do some of those things, but um, this feels like progress. What, what, from your expertise, you know, do you view what Joint Commission is doing and, and certainly what the legislation that is, is pending in Congress, um, you know, how those could have a direct impact on facilities? Yeah, we just got word. In fact, I just was at um, a meeting looking at 2022 curriculum and expectations from the Joint Commission. And to have a Joint Commission endorse this as something that they're going to start investigating and checking the box, maybe that's a great place to start if you work in a system where, you know, Joint Commission is very powerful and, and they can, now that they're mandating that we have these programs in place across the board, they actually, I just looked at all of their um, the requests and recommendations and things they're going to be checking for. And it almost follows to the letter what our House Bill 1931 is. So I guess there is regulatory standards. I, you know, that I don't know why Joint Commission slipped my mind, but they did. But you're right. That's going to go for every hospital system. So you have your leg up right there for anybody that wants to get anything started. There's your starting point is 2022. This is um, what Joint Commission is going to mandate. So yeah, that's a great call out. And that makes me happy. That makes, that sort of gives me the, you know, the integrity that says, hey, we're listening and we know this is a problem and we're going to, we're going to mandate that your hospital recognize this. So in a, in a, on a topic where there's a lot of uh, negativity and, and a lot of, you know, horrible stories and tragic stories, you know, there is at least, you know, uh, a little bit of light that's showing that there, there should be some progress in the near future. And, um, certainly, you've you're working in a program that uh, is helped to start, you know, hopefully turning the tide where you're at. And I'm sure the measurements come in a variety of forms. But um, you know, I get the sense that you're, you're you know a year into it, you're seeing you know progress, and you're you're seeing ways that you can help share the word with others who may be uh, similarly situated to you, whether it's independently or whether it's because of things that are coming down the road from Joint Commission and other places. So. Wendy Mickelson, uh, the Workplace Violence Program Manager for Multicare System in Washington State. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today. 
Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, and please reach out, anyone out there listening and has questions about it, I am happy to, um, to get on my soapbox and my platform and use it. So um, that's what we do. Thank you again. Very good. And of course, you know, uh, ENA and ASAP together uh, a couple of years ago now put together the No Silence on ED Violence campaign. And um, one of the things that we'll be looking at in the next few months is really uh, reinvigorating that campaign, which you know, unfortunately, like a lot of things, while the issue never went away, the focus on the campaign and really building up the ambassadorship and the support for you know, not just telling the stories, but finding solutions and doing things similar to what Wendy's doing is really where the campaign uh, is looking to reinvigorate itself as we uh, deal with, you know, wherever we're at with the pandemic and realizing that the pandemic's impact on workplace violence is something that uh, uh, is certainly being noticed in a lot of places. So I encourage uh, everyone to, uh, to visit stopedviolence.org um, and certainly, you know, take a look at what resources ENA has on its website and through uh, the ENA University platform uh, for the resources and the other tools that we have uh, on the topic of workplace violence. So uh, we thank Wendy for being a part of the podcast today. And, and certainly we thank everyone for listening. And we look forward to you joining us for the next episode of the ENA podcast. <laughs>